Will you guys turn in your Bibles with me to 1 Samuel chapter 16. We're going to transition this morning to a kind of a different part in this story. We're moving out of uh, the kind of focusing on King Saul and seeing for the very first time King David, which is going to usher in a very different era for the people of Israel. But I'm just going to read the first 13 verses this morning in 1 Samuel 16. So if you'll listen along or read along as I read. This is God's word. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite. For I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord, and invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shema pass by. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, Are all your sons here? And he said, There remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for, the, for your word. And we thank you for its transformative power. In every genre of literature that we get in your Bible, we're moved and changed and transformed. And we would ask that that would happen. That the words of my mouth and the meditation of the hearts of every single person in here would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. Well, like I said, we're going to turn now to this section of 1 Samuel where we learn of the rise of King David. We've read and we've heard for quite a while now of what we've said over and over again are sort of the serious and severe blunders and missteps of King Saul. We've seen him rise to power, albeit a power that he never really seemed to search for or necessarily want. And then we've seen him perplexed and dismayed and frustrated and confused by virtually every turn of fortune. But something very different happens in 1 Samuel 16. 
We're now given a main character, a, a seminal character in this book that all of a sudden we feel a kinship to. Someone that we relate to. We're given maybe one of the most relevant and contemporary men that we find in all of our Bible. Saul's story might be tragic and unfortunate, or maybe it just exhibits a bunch of huge moral errors, but however you spin it, the reality is no one in this room wants to emulate or be like Saul. That's not going to happen. But David, we feel a close kinship to in some way. Saul appears to us to be a kind of fool, the way that a middle schooler might think about his dad, and David is so alive and vibrant, which is funny in a way. Because when you think of Saul, when you, when you think about him, maybe you think he deserves kind of what he's gotten. In every single step, we've seen Saul get punished for a variety of different actions. And maybe you look at him and you say, Man, he definitely deserves the trouble that the Lord and Samuel and all these other people in leadership afflict upon him. Maybe he deserves that. But when it comes to David, and you feel this kinship to him, and then you read First and Second Samuel closely, you realize that he shouldn't really come out smelling like roses. The poet-musician that you find in so many of the Psalms in First and Second Samuel is a conflicted, early Iron Age warrior chief. And so you find yourself in a situation where you're looking at a conflicted and complex man. And so in 1 Samuel 16, 1 through 13, you begin to see the complexity of this narrative sort of foreshadowed in a number of different ways. You see Jesse sort of ignoring his youngest son out in the field, but then the Lord favoring him. He's called ruddy and handsome, and yet the Lord looks not on the outward appearance, but on the heart, and you're unclear what's going on exactly. But I think we all know the material phrase that you find in this passage. And it's the one that maybe, I don't know what a percentage would be, but many of us have heard over and over and over again. It's become kind of a commonplace in the circles of the church. And that's this phrase that you read in verse 7, where Samuel looks at Eliab and says, here's my guy. This is surely the guy that's going to come next, the guy that's going to follow Saul. And the, Lord breaks, the Lord's voice breaks in and says, don't look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I've rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. Here's what I want to do with this this morning. You obviously have two, probably two different perspectives. This is maybe the simplest two perspectives you can look at that verse, and that's these. You can think about the way what Samuel does and what we do, which is look on other people. We can think about the way that we judge other people by outward appearance and not their heart. And you can think about the way that we judge ourselves by our outward appearance and not by our heart. Do you see those two different directions? You can go in two ways, and it affects each and every one of us. Do you think about when you look at somebody else and you begin to analyze them like we all do with each other? Do you do that because of what you see in their heart or because of some outward appearance that you perceive them to have. And then secondly, and 
conversely, how do you think about yourself? When you look at yourself, do you judge yourself? Do you lay awake at night anxious about yourself because of your outward appearance or because of the rootedness that the gospel has taken in your heart? Two, those two different perspectives. Those are the questions we'll ask this morning. So the first thing I think you see in terms of how we look at other people and how we use this as a standard by which we judge other people, I think it says to us that our initial perceptions of people may be wrong, but God gives us eyes to judge each other, which is wonderful news, without partiality. So chapter 16 begins with this amazing, kind of wonderful bizarre scene where the Lord looks at Samuel and verse 1 and in a very personal and intimate way, almost the way a spouse would talk to another spouse or a friend would talk to a friend and says, how long are you going to grieve over Saul? The Lord confronts him for that. And you can see why, I think, you can see why Samuel would be struggling with this. You can see why Samuel would think of this choice that he was a part of to select Saul as king over Israel, and that would be a troubling thing when he saw the devastation that Saul inflicted upon Israel. Because surely there's a sense in which Samuel had a deep sense of affection for Saul. But Samuel's grief over Saul has gotten to a point that it's just becoming troublesome. The Lord is bothered by it, and the Lord is saying we have to move on because The kingdom of God, represented in the kingdom of Israel, is bigger than Samuel. It's bigger than Saul. It's bigger than David. It's bigger than every other character you're going to find in these two books of Samuel. The kingdom of God, its agenda, is much bigger than any single person with all of their failures and all of their baggage. And so the the agenda of the kingdom has to move on. So God sends Samuel to visit Jesse, and immediately Samuel spots the big guy, right? He sees Eliab. That's the first thing he sees, and and probably he spots that guy because not only because it was custom to select that person as a king, but also because surely Eliab looked a lot like Saul looked. And it was very difficult for Samuel's mind to flip the switch and begin to look in a different direction. But Samuel sees Eliab and he says, this is our man. Now that's, in some ways, a scary moment in this book because so much in First and Second Samuel depends on basic choices that God's people make. You remember that simple choice that Saul made? that we read a few weeks ago, to make a rash vow about what he would do to the person that ate some honey, that rash, simple choice created all sorts of problems. But here we have Samuel. I mean, the one whom his mother, who we love, his mother Hannah, who we've loved from the very beginning of this story, the one who she prayed for and begged God for, the one who God spoke to in the temple of Eli and his vision is getting cloudy. Samuel's vision is starting to get distorted. Surely we can expect God's prophet, his great seer, the one who can sort of cast a vision for Israel to move forward. Surely we can expect him to make the right choice. But no, not even Samuel can be trusted to make a wise decision for the people of Israel in isolation. 
We can't even trust Samuel to make a wise decision separated from God's greater conscience as it's expressed in Israel. That's shocking. And it's scary. Because if Samuel struggles with missing the heart of somebody, surely all of us do the same. And we could spend a whole sermon talking about how Samuel's vision got distorted. Because really what happened here is, he comes in, God God did something last week, he said that he regretted making Saul king. And then Samuel starts grieving. He grieves all the way through chapter 15, he's still grieving in chapter 16, and that grief begins to do something to his vision. He can't see correctly. And we could talk all day long about the way that grief over our sin, grief over bad decisions, grief over mistakes that we've made, paralyzes us and confuses us and distorts our vision. And David did, David Gentino did that a couple months ago when he delineated between what we call maybe like worldly grief and what you could call godly grief. But surely godly grief, we could say, is marked by at least this. The ability to grieve over a bad decision, a mistake, something that maybe is a flagrant sin. The ability to grieve over that, experience the voice of the Spirit, and move on to get momentum. But carnal grief, the grief that you find Samuel doing here, it immobilizes him. And that just doesn't work for the kingdom. Because the kingdom has to advance. Whether or not failures happen, we have to move on, receive the grace of the gospel. Now, I think we all like to think, at least I do, that I'm not like Samuel in this. That I wouldn't have this failure of intuition. Because I've seen enough Pixar movies. And I know how to spot the swan that's going to mutate out of that ugly duckling. I can see Cinderella sweeping in the background, even with a pageant of beauty queens in the foreground. I can spot it. I'm sure I can. I would never make this kind of mistake. I know who the glass slipper fits on, and it's not Husky Eliab. It's on the ruddy one. But the reality is, the reality is that's not true. I think we all know that that's not true. As much as we long for these stories to root deep in our consciences, most of us, most of the time, pine after appearances. We look forward in our leadership. That's the obvious application point to make here, right? We should follow the aggressive extrovert, or we should follow the mover and shaker. That's there. But what about the more subtle point? The point that we look for outward appearance in those that we just surround ourselves with as friends. And maybe that's the more material point and the more dangerous point for the Christian. Because remembering that God looks on the heart, not the outward appearance, frees us to love without partiality. The church is different than every other place in the world because it gives you a venue for that. I don't know another place like the church than to give you a venue to begin to standardize and love the people that you see around you only for their heart. Which is why it's so critical for us day in and day out to force 
diversity into our midst in every way. And I mean ethnic diversity, socioeconomic diversity, age diversity. All of those things are critical for our life as a body because when we're surrounded by them, all of a sudden you have this opportunity to learn what it looks like to judge from the heart. This passage, I think, is largely about God's freedom and human bondage so often in decision-making. God was free to look on the heart, and Samuel was bound to look elsewhere. That bondage devastated Samuel. He grieved and grieved and grieved and grieved because of it. How could he have been so wrong, he must have thought. But God was free. And he was free to look on the heart and he was free to move quickly in another direction and begin to analyze things in a way that Samuel didn't know how to. And I think he calls us to do that very same thing. To give us the ability to build relationships with one another where those relationships are built on the freedom that the gospel gives, the freedom that the gospel gives to each of our hearts. That's an amazing thing. Because there you have the ability to grab a friend deep in sin and say, it's no longer, you're not bound to this anymore. The grief that you feel over it, it doesn't bind you. Get up and let's move forward. Let's move in a different direction. That's how we judge each other. How do we judge ourselves? This is, I think, critical. Because if this passage is true, and God looks on the outward appearance, and He does not, or God does not look on the outward appearance, He looks on your heart. If that's true, it means that God isn't judging you on things you can't change. God's not judging you on things you can't change about yourself. We don't have to live like Samuel, judging ourselves by our physique or our ambition or our wealth or our social status. We don't have to do anything like we don't have to judge other people like that. And if we have anxiety about the way the people, the other people that we surround ourselves by. Surely the anxiety that's in our own hearts about those things is doubled, tripled, quadrupled. We feel way worse about those things about ourselves, I'm sure of it, than we do others. The gospel tells us over and over again that our greatest need is our heart, not the projection of an outward image. But our world holds out such a different perspective. Our world is no different from the world of, from this era that 1 Samuel was written in. Our society bows before very different icons than the Bible calls us to. You guys know the things that capture our attention, where they arise from. The worlds of entertainment, ambition, work, amusement, fashion, technology, and so on. I've heard it said a million times, nothing wrong with any of those things as they stand. But it's not the thing that God is judging us by. It's not God, it's not how God is analyzing you. And that's why our desire for those things and our fulfillment of our desire for those things so often leave us feeling unsatisfied. These are matters of outward satisfaction. And so often they put us in this painful bipolar swing of anxious responsibility and escapist amusement. Which you guys know what I mean by that. That swing that all of us feel to work really hard, do better for ourselves, get better. Saul's doing it all the time. And then then coming off of that, feeling exhausted and finding something to escape from. And I know that pendulum swing so, so well. 
but the remaking and reworking of what is in our heart breeds that delicate balance of the pendulum. And the good news is that's the premier work of God's Spirit. So here's what, here's what it's about then. 1 Samuel 16 is about a fresh start. But it's not just about a fresh start for Israel. It's about a fresh start for you. I was reading this week, maybe one of the, when you get a pat, one of the things that I like to do when I have a passage and I'm just trying to understand it, there's this thing out there called electionary. And churches that are like what we would call, you guys know what I mean when I say high church, they use electionary often. And all electionary is, is a calendar. It's a, like an Excel, it's a spreadsheet. And it gives you the passage that you should preach from, and it gives you a passage from one of the Gospels that you should read from in a different part of your service, and then it gives you a passage uh, from one of Paul's epistles that you should also read from. Uh, the thing that's interesting about electionary is that when you get your, you get your spreadsheet you don't know, there's no commentary or footnote that tells you why different passages were selected to go with the sermon passage. So it gives you this moment of personal, you, you, you have to figure it out for yourselves. You don't know the mind of the lectionarian or whatever. You have no idea what he's thinking. 1 Samuel 16, when it comes up in the lectionary, is attached to two passages. The first passage from the gospel is John chapter 9. John chapter 9 is the story of Jesus healing the man born blind. And then the other passage that it's attached to is Ephesians chapter 5. And it gives you just a selection from Ephesians chapter 5. Centered in verse 13. Verse 13 of Ephesians 5 says, When anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake. O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. When you read all those passages together, it illuminates one thing about 1 Samuel 16. 1 Samuel 16 is a story about grace and renewal. It's a story about a God who watches His people of Israel descend into death under the leadership of Saul and resurrects them from the grave by the youngest of Jesse of the Bethlehemite sons. John chapter 9 becomes a story about God's physical resurrection of a man who was born dead. Dead from not being able to see, had no sight. And then Ephesians 5 caps it off because it tells the story of a God who's deeply willing, totally willing, to expose sin that's hidden in every Christian's heart, to forgive it without equivocation, and to change that person forever. So like we all said, we may feel steeped in this story. The story may feel, I, was, I joked about it being like a Disney movie or about, you know, the ugly duckling turns, all that I'm joking. But this is no campy fable. This is a miraculous story about a God that is no slave to custom. He's not a slave to appearances or social or political traditions, all because he is their author. This is a story about a God that makes all things new and won't let his kingdom fail. And so even though a gray film hovers over and swamps out and makes dark, 
the story of Saul, new light begins to dawn on Israel with the anointing of this young shepherd boy. Tearing through the bleak film of Saul's disobedience is the twilight of dawn and the foreshadowing of a full-blown day for Israel. But here's the question, and we'll close with this. Do you feel the freedom of God in 1 Samuel 16? And do you know what I mean by that? Do you hear the gospel in this passage? He has more liberty than any of you can imagine. Samuel was paralyzed by grief over Saul. You and I are so often paralyzed by grief over our sin, by frustrations over mistakes we make, by character defects that seem to never be expelled, and God isn't bound to that grief. He's free from that grief. He's free to tell you to get moving to give you momentum, and to say that movement is exactly what you need. This is a new moment for Israel, and the potential becomes endless. And like them, we're bound to these arrhythmias of life and behavior and habit, and God is free to forgive those failures and grant you and I new ways of life. We're enslaved to these griefs over bad choices or grief, over something we can't change about our brains or our bodies or our appearances or whatever, and God is free to mobilize us and to tell us to move forward. He's free to break His Spirit into your heart and give you the ability to say to yourself, to hear Ephesians 5 screaming at you, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Will you pray with me? Father, we pray that that exactly would be true. And you would shine on us this morning. That you would expose these areas in our life where we're not receiving forgiveness from you. We want to do that more. We know we're not. Will you break into our hearts and in our lives and will you show us your spirit and the way that he has the power and ability to transform us into new ways of life. Father, will you give us this day as a Sabbath? And will you give everyone in this room rest from their labors? Take away their weariness, restore their souls. In your name we pray. Amen.